And let's take our Bibles and turn together to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians will be our book of study this evening. 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, as you likely already knew, and it's a letter that is uh, one of those letters that's referred to as an occasional letter, meaning that the content of the letter itself is largely driven by the circumstances experienced uh, within the church and even within the life of Paul. It's not just conceptual or broad or general in the same way that Romans was, although there were circumstances that motivated the writing of the book of Romans. A great deal of the content of Romans, which we looked at last two Wednesday nights ago now, was focused on the message of the gospel. In my estimation, Paul uh, settling right the gospel in Rome in the hopes that it would become a missions outpost as he sought to take the message of the gospel to the edge of the civilized world, even as far as Spain, as he describes in the book. First Corinthians is far more occasional than that. There are so many issues that need to be addressed in the Corinthian church. The vast majority of the letter is focused on dealing with those issues. If, uh, if, if you've ever looked at church situations and just thought, that's so jacked up, I don't know how the Lord could be in it then I would encourage you to spend some time with First and Second Corinthians because the church at Corinth was a mixed up mess. And in spite of that, God was at work and moving through that in some pretty astounding ways. Sometimes we can really foul it up on our end. And in spite of that, God works and saves his people and calls them out and advances the gospel in exceptional ways. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are focused on addressing problems that exist within this church. Among them were divisions and factions, misunderstanding with regards to stewardship. They were not well motivated to give, and he warns them not only in 1 Corinthians but in 2 Corinthians that in anticipation of this love offering that Paul is receiving, collecting for the saints in Judea, they should prepare themselves because it seems they're unprepared up until then. There is a situation which we'll discuss in 1 Corinthians 5 wherein a son is involved in an adulterous affair with his stepmother, and that's probably a generous reading of that passage. There are situations wherein members of the church are suing one another in a court of law because of disagreements that they have between them. Their worship services have turned into these chaotic frenzied emotional experiences that look nothing like what God ever intended a public gathering of the church to look like. They have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of spiritual gifts. There, there's just problem. There are people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, I've had issues in churches that I've pastored through the years, but I have yet to have that one, right? People getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Um, there, there is an absence of love in their exercise of spiritual gifts. Even where there's giftedness, there's an absence of love and grace and mercy toward those around them. And if those issues weren't bad enough, in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that they're beginning to draw back when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. They're really struggling with these resurrection issues. It seems the core problem may not be so much the resurrection of Jesus, but our own resurrection. 
On the one hand, some seem to want to affirm the resurrection of Jesus while denying that we would ourselves be resurrected. Those two realities are inseparably bound together. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our physical resurrection. It is the thing that makes our understanding of the afterlife different and distinct from other world religions. We believe not only in life after death, but in life after life after death. When our soul is rejoined with our physical body raised incorruptible from the grave on the day of Christ's return. So when I tell you this is a church that is a mess, I mean to tell you it is a church that is a mess. Paul begins with something of a central issue in chapters 1 through 4. Now, I've tied together the key themes and the outline of 1 Corinthians because I think it works that way. Chapters 1 through 4 are largely focused on factions and divisions that exist within the church. Look at chapter 1, beginning in verse number 10. Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? And then Paul goes into this discussion about baptism and how he's glad that he didn't baptize any more than he did in fear of that creating even more division in the church. So the initial charge of 1 Corinthians is that there be unity and togetherness in the church. He's heard from those within Chloe's household. Chloe is likely the hostess that houses the church. There's a home where they meet, and Chloe is the hostess there, and so they're identified as those of Chloe's household. And the report is this. Some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas or Peter, that's another name for Peter, and some say I'm of Christ. Let's think about those factions for just a moment. There are those who have attached themselves to Paul as the founder of the church. They've, they've so attached themselves to Paul as the personality that drove things in the beginning that he is their man. We're going to be on the Paul team and we're going to take our corner of the church over here. Some say we're of Apollos. What we know about Apollos is that he was probably the most eloquent preacher of the group mentioned here outside of Jesus himself. Apollos was a man of great rhetorical ability, and so Apollos comes in. And in Corinth, there's a tremendous amount of, of appeal to preachers who can preach well, right? If they're, if they're good speakers, they tend to draw people to themselves, especially in the city of Corinth. And I think that probably looked much different than what we consider to be good preaching or charisma today. It was just the ability to speak fluent, to, fluidly and, and to speak um, on a level with depth before the people. There was something about Apollos as the preacher that really appealed. And so some said, we're going with the preacher. We really like the sermon. Then there were some that said, we're going to go with Peter for various motivations. He is the protoss, the number one apostle, most directly connected to Jesus, closer in many respects than was the apostle Paul. We're going with Peter. And so each of these three camps have sort of taken their corner in the church. And then there's the super spiritual camp. And they say, we're not with Paul or Peter or Paulus. We're with Jesus. 
you can almost hear the way they would say it, right? We're the spiritual people, and we're going to do what's right, and, and we're going to get over here in our corner of the church, and we're going to talk about how low down the rest of you are. So these are the four factions that exist within the church. And on some level, these factions exist in every divided church. And I got news for you. All four factions are in sin. All four factions are wrong. These factions exist in every church that finds itself in a place of division. Even in the past couple of weeks, I think I can safely say this here, in conversation with brothers that I love and care for deeply who would regard themselves as of the Christ faction and having to break the news to them that no matter how spiritual you may believe yourself to be, if you are contributing to the division of the church, you are in sin. All four factions are in sin. Everybody is involved in sin. And we have this incredible knack, this uncanny ability for justifying our contribution to the division that can exist within the church. When Satan begins to get an inch in terms of division in the church, he can create in us this ability to rationalize our contribution to the division that's unfolding or taking place in the church. And we must be ever vigilant that we guard ourselves against being a tool of Satan and his minions to create factions or division or discord or disunity in the church. Because here's what I can tell you. For most people, the 99% of people who contribute to division in the church believe themselves to be perfectly justified in the things that they do. I have never had a conversation with a pastor who shepherded through a disaster in a church who said, I made some dreadful decisions and I, I caused a lot of problems and issues. This is always the story. Those people were so wicked and they were so awful that they eventually just ran me off. Now, there are wicked people in the church, don't get me wrong. And there are churches that are incredibly difficult to shepherd. But that's precisely the thing the Bible has in view when it says bear with the weaker brother. There are times when sheep have to be separated from goats, when the wheat has to be separated from the tares. I got all that. I'm not talking about that. But that is such a minuscule percentage of what drives division that happens in the body. And all it takes is for that to unfold one time. And it creates its own subculture within a church. I'm, I'm speaking to you as a united church, a word of warning here from a brother who has pastored churches that experienced tremendous division. I was afraid before God called me to be your pastor that he had given me for the rest of my life the ministry of reconciliation. And I just got to tell you, that kind of reconciliation, I was done with all that. And I prayed, Lord, if there's a way, I'd really rather not do this again. I don't, want to, I don't want to do this anymore. I love you people, and I want to lead, and I want to preach, and I want to shepherd, but I'm done with all this foolishness. Because when that subculture of divisiveness is created within a body, when people learn how to fight, they eventually crave the opportunity to satisfy that yearning. And it is an incredibly difficult thing to turn back. 
If ever there's an inkling of an idea in your mind that here is an issue about which we ought to be divided or there ought to be discord or there ought to be factions established, you had better bathe that issue in prayer and seek the counsel of godly men to pray along with you. You had better know with absolute 100% certainty that it's an issue that is deserving of that level, that kind of attention. Because once it rears its head, there is no turning back. Paul chastises each of these four groups equally for their contribution to the disunity in that church, and justifiably so. Down in verse number 26, Paul provides further perspective here. And he, he's, he's building on this argument that the church is no place for division and discord. He says, brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. And his discourse here concludes in verse 31, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Now this is directly connected to the problem of division in the church, because all division and envy and strife is the product of pride. And pride is a tremendous issue in the Corinthian church. And what Paul is saying in a sort of genteel way is this. Look around, folks. You don't have much to be proud of. There's no place for arrogance or boasting. You came from among the least of these. God did not call to himself the strong man to bind the weak, but the weak to bind the strong. God did not call from among the people the wise to confound the feeble-minded. He called the feeble-minded to confound the wise. He did not call the significant to demonstrate something to the insignificant, but the insignificant to prove that there's something about the gospel. Paul is saying, look at your, evaluate yourself. Now, I'm sure there were some who evaluated themselves and still found themselves to be in a place deserving of some degree of pride or arrogance. But the gospel requires of us a self-perspective that would have to acknowledge Paul is right. Paul didn't call the strong. Paul didn't call the wise. God didn't call the strong. God didn't call the wise. God didn't call the significant. But the least of these... The heart of God is bent toward the least of these, the foolish and the weak. My granny used to say, God looks after fools and babies. She said that always in jest and usually suggesting that I fell into one or more of those categories. And she was right. But there's, there's some gospel spirit about that little slogan, right? God indeed looks after those who can't look after themselves. That's the way God's heart is wired toward mankind. There's always a bent toward the least of these. And Paul is saying, consider where you came from. Now that in itself can contribute to discord in the church. Because sometimes people who don't have a voice in the world, when, being, when, when they've been given a voice in the church and have come to know that they can presume upon the grace of the members of the church, they will seek to flex their fledgling muscles 
and create discord or division within the body. But in the grand scheme of things, all of us have been called from among the least of these. And the humble pie that ought to come with what Paul has described here should get us off of our high horse and grant us the ability to see others around us in a new and gospel-focused kind of light. Now, Paul shifts in chapters 2 and 3 to this idea of his lowly or humble position, and then the lowly and humble position of all preachers. Remember, they're rallying around Peter, Paul, Apollos, and then you got the spiritual group with Jesus. But for the most part, they're rallying around individual leaders of the church. Now, this is not a desire of those leaders, and woe unto leaders who would desire to gather around themselves a faction of people who would make war against other, others within the church. But this is what's happening here. So Paul returns to his own preaching ministry and speaks to the spirit of that ministry in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration of the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, you may not see it, but Paul is addressing this issue in the Corinthian church and in the Corinthian culture a fascination with a certain kind of speaker, and now in a Christian context, a certain kind of preacher. In the first century and even beyond, this is addressed in secular works outside of Christianity, there were really three, three factors, three elements of preaching or speaking or proclamation that appealed to the listener. Aristotle, in fact, puts these on paper in his book called Rhetoric. And he says, if you really want to persuade or to have influence or to be beloved as a preacher, you want to have this daunting appearance or at least allow that something about your reputation would go before you. You want to create an expectation within the audience that, that when you speak, it's, it's something substantial or significant. But Paul says, I didn't come that way. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Whether his reputation went before him to Corinth or not, I don't know, but nothing about his appearance based on the way Paul is described in the New Testament and in the traditions of the church would suggest that anyone would be overly impressed with his stature. Little more than four foot tall, the name Paul means little in the Greek language, so maybe that's an actual description of his stature. By the time he experienced the beatings and the flogging, specifically being whipped with cords, most believe he would have been what F.F. Bruce calls bandy-legged and bent over in his, in his walk, stooping constantly as a result of the beatings and floggings that he experienced over time. He would have had on his body the scars of those various beatings and floggings and shipwrecks and challenges experienced over the course of his ministry. And then he stands to speak. 
He doesn't come in the white Greco-Roman toga robe that you see depicted in the Hollywood motion picture. He comes in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And then, and then they would say that if you really want to wow the masses, not only do you need to have this certain kind of appearance, tanned, rested, and ready before the people, right? But, but you, you need to have an intellectual ability that affords you the power to speak at the top of their level and then at times just to remind them of your superiority above their level. Say something that goes over their head. And for the Corinthians, they seem to be really impressed with that. I don't get it, but that's how you measure preaching, speaking ability in this first century Greco-Roman culture. But Paul says, I made no effort at speaking to things of depth. Rather, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul is saying, I refuse to play the game. I just wasn't going to go there. And sometimes I, I, I think, I, I, don't, I don't think that I personally have a, a really high level of natural giftedness when it comes to speaking. But there are times when I think in preaching, I'm going to try to be really boring right here and see what the Lord does with it. I have that conscious thought at times in preaching. Because you really want to guard against what Paul was guarding against here. There was no desire on his part that they would be persuaded or led by human wisdom or by the power of his presence, his charisma before them, but by the power of the gospel alone they'd be saved. In the first century system, they would say if, you, if you've got this presence and then if you've got the intellect, if, if you've got the ability to speak over their heads, you're in good shape. But if you really want to move the masses, you've got to have ethos. You've got to have emotion. You've, you've got to have effect. You've got to be able to pull and tug at the heartstrings of the people. But Paul rids himself of this secular way of thinking about preaching and speaking, determining to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul said, I'm not going to play the game, and I'm not going to play the game because it won't benefit you, and it won't benefit the advancement of the gospel. The Word of God, and, and this is just a word to preaching in general, the Word of God is where the power is. The, the, the Word is powerful. It's not powerful because we preach it. But if we preach it, there's power there, right? That's where the power is. Paul says, I'm going to stick with the gospel. And I'm not going to play the game of first century Greco-Roman rhetoric. I'm just going to stick with the gospel. And in that, there is a confidence in his heart that what he's seeing before him is real, legitimate, valid fruit of God's spirit at work and on the move around them. Now, what he's doing here is complementary to what he said about the people in the previous chapter. God didn't call the strong. He didn't call the wise. He called the weak, and he called the foolish. And in other words, he takes a John the Baptist approach to ministry. The goal for the preacher is to decrease as God, as Jesus, as Christ increases. The goal of the preacher ought to never be to hear the people say, what a great sermon. 
but to hear the people say, what a great Savior. That's precisely what Paul is describing in the passage. Paul says, in the same way that you have no place for pride, neither do I. Model after this, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He continues this in chapter 3 and verse number 5. He asks, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given him. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. In other words, if you're attaching yourself to Paul or Peter or Apollos, you have hitched your cart to the wrong horse because none of us are anything. We're just sowers and waterers in the the vineyard, in the garden of God, but it's God alone who can provide the increase. What he seeks to offer here is a dose of humility. And humility is really the answer to disunity. And they're, they're, really, they're really two elements, two ingredients to harmony in the church. Humility and gospel focus. The thing that happens when the gospel is not the focus, when the advancement of the gospel is not the focus, is that we've taken our eyes off the nations, the lost around us. And so naturally we have to begin to look around at one another. And it doesn't take long looking around at one another to find something to be disunited over, to find a reason for discord and frustration and envy and strife and anger and frustration. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul deals with what I think in a category we can develop here is resolving issues within the church. There are some specific issues addressed here, but all of them sort of come under the broader category of resolving issues within the church. And it's a logical next step. Once you've begun to deal with the problem of disunity and you've established the need for humility and moving beyond that kind of disunity, it's a natural next step to give consideration to how issues within the church might, might be resolved on a corporate level. In chapter 5, we have a grievous example of immorality in the church. Verse 1 says, It's widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And most New Testament scholars, I think, in, in hopeful expectation, assume that that's his stepmother. And you're in, in verse 2, listen, this is, care, this, is, this is good, listen carefully. And you're inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. For though I'm absent in body but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's talk through this passage. This is one of those that I I think sometimes I assume people understand and appreciate, and often I'm reminded that that's not the case at all. This man is involved in public sexual immorality, living with, which is a euphemism here for sleeping with, his father's wife, mother or stepmother, one of the two. In either case, it's really, really bad. 
and the church has failed to, di to deal with this issue in discipline. Now, already there has been opportunity for repentance and reconciliation and restoration. Not only do we know that on the basis of other New Testament passages, we know that on the basis of the way Paul treats this issue here and then the way this issue is revisited later. What they should have done is at the point in time at which this gentleman was unwilling to repent of his sin and to bring an end to this relationship was to, as a church assembled, remove him from the fellowship of the church. That was the appropriate action to be taken. And I realize that in our culture that can seem unloving or uncaring, but the reality here is that is a move that is taken not only for the well-being of the church, but for the good of the individual himself who's being disciplined and for the good of the kingdom. One of the reasons, in my estimation, that the church in America struggles so to make ground is because of her failures to deal with obvious examples of immorality within the body over the past 50, 60, 70 years. There, there just is no taste for really saying when it matters what is right and what is wrong. And the unfortunate result of that is a real loss of legitimacy within the culture. Now, there was a time in American Baptist history when churches were turning out about 10% of their membership annually. In other words, about 10% of the membership of a church on average was voted out by a congregation on an annual basis. Now, that's probably a little excessive. I think we can fairly say that. But do you know that the result of an insistence on righteousness and a seriousness about the gospel was that during that same period of time, in spite of cutting 10% of their membership annually, that Baptist churches in America were growing by 20% annually. That's a 30% growth over, over where they were the year before when you factor in the 10% loss. And here's the reason. There's an old adage in the newspaper industry that says the medium is the message. In other words, the, the means by which you receive the message communicates something about the message itself. The example I always like to use, and I, I guess I probably should find another example because people are far too political to hear this with sound minds anymore. But I always use an example of, of, there's a presidential debate. And you've got a Democrat on one side and you've got a Republican on the other. And both of them say, I'm going to reduce the deficit. Now you feel how you want to feel about this issue. This is not, the, the politics are not the point. But you know, because the medium is the message, that the Democrat candidate means he's going to raise your taxes. And you know because the medium is the message that the Republican is going to cut the budget. You know because the medium is the message. And in our failure to deal seriously with sin, we have impacted in grave ways the way the world around us hears us. Hear that message from an unrepentant and unbelieving people they can only come to the conclusion that we're not serious about this gospel business. That all Jesus really expects of us is this sort of half-hearted, ambivalent belief in the gospel, and hey, we're willing to go there. 
whether it has saving effect or not, we'll affirm on some level or we'll dismiss it altogether as lacking seriousness given the means by which or through which we've heard the message itself. The medium is the message. And until the church of Jesus in the Western world gets seriousness, serious about public sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality, we are going to struggle to have legitimacy in the public square or to have a voice with the public whatsoever when it comes to serious issues, gravely serious issues like the message of the gospel. When there is an example of sexual immora- public sexual immorality in the church, that must be dealt with. And I'm going to tell you guys, because it's going to be controversial when the day comes, but inevitably the day is coming when I come before you as your pastor and say so-and-so is being brought before the church for consideration of their removal given their failure to repent of the sin that's public and ov- it's overt. It's obvious this thing is happening in their life. And people are going to go, what in the world has just happened at Longview Point Baptist Church? But you come to these places, no one delights in these kinds of things. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. But, but they're responsibilities that we bear as a body to see that we're taking seriously the commands of Christ. I'll, I'll tell you this, not every sin is a sin that requires church discipline or this kind of process. Um, in the New Testament, I see three broad categories that are addressed or dealt with on this level. Sexual immorality is one. Um, heresy is another doctrinal issues can lead to this level of, of, of address by the, the, the church assembled and then creating division within the church. That, that's, that's another, you just have to deal with it and you, you do what Barney Fife said and you nip it in the bud or, or you'll be dealing with it for the next 50 addressed or dealt with on that level in the New Testament. So they had failed to deal with it. Now I told you we're reading through that you needed to hear what was said in verse two very carefully because I'm, I'm afraid for many churches this is where we are. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. There, there, are, there are times when we counsel with people who are seeking membership with our church and because of open sin we we cannot accommodate them if if uh, open sin specifically sexual immorality that's the most apparent example is such that it would cause us to take action as a body it would be nonsensical that we would take in an individual or individuals who were involved in public sin as they were seeking to be united with the church and here's what they say to me We'll, we'll go find a church that will be affirming of the decisions that we're making. And you know, the sad reality is they will. And, and the sad reality is they won't have to go far to find one. And within those bodies, their sin will be celebrated and they will celebrate themselves as though they've extended this great measure of grace in celebrating the sin that has entangled that individual in their efforts at entering into that body. Instead of being filled with the grief and the sorrow they ought to be filled with at the removal of this man from the fellowship of that church, they are puffed up with pride, believing that they've done something that's saturated with grace because they've tolerated the presence of this heinous sin in the midst of their congregation. Now, that's where we are, not us personally. I pray to God that's not where we are personally. But this is exhibited in congregations all over the Western world and especially in the United States. Paul gives them the instruction in verses 4 and 5 as to how they should proceed. 
when you're assembled in the name of Jesus with my spirit and with the power of Christ, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What they're, what they're to say is essentially this. We are putting you out of the fellowship of the church because we can, never, we can no longer affirm that you are a true believer in Jesus on the basis of the, the decisions, the life that you've chosen to live. And until you say that, listen, this is where the danger is. Until you say that, you're allowing that person to live as though they are saved and safe from the judgment to come when in reality we can't make that determination on the basis of the way they're living their life before Christ. This is not about retribution or paybacks. And, and, and you don't, don't, don't come to Brother Wade and say, I, ne I need you to, we need to kick so-and-so out of the church. Let me tell you what they did to me. Because I'm going to say, what you need to do is you need to go talk to them. You need to resolve it before you bring it to the pastor. And I'm going to press on you a whole lot at that, right? This is not about retribution, but about genuinely, truly seeking this person's restoration or their regeneration that they might truly be saved. Paul says you turn them over to Satan. In other words, you separate them from the benefits of fellowship with the church so that they might crave to have that once again as a part of their life, so they, they might see the absence of the graces that come with fellowship in the church and return and come to Christ for grace and mercy and forgiveness. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. He continues to deal with this further in verses 9 through 13 in, uh, in chapter 5, but I, I want us to move on and catch at least one other issue before our time is done. I don't deal with in the outline chapters 7 through 10. They deal with sex and marriage and Christian liberty. I dealt with those chapters in some fair depth during our marriage and family series from Mother's Day to Father's Day. And besides that, these are really difficult issues to deal with that I'd rather not do, with, do any more frequently than what I absolutely have to. So see those sermons for further information there, right? Uh, then Paul deals with, in chapter 11 through 14, the public gathering of the church. And I won't have enough time to deal with this as much as what I would really like to, but there, there's some really good insight here in these chapters. He deals with, in chapter 11, the Lord's Supper. We talk about that from time to time in every starting point. We talk about that from time to time when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So I'm not going to spend as much time there. But I, I do want us to consider for a moment this whole matter of spiritual gifts. This can be sort of a controversial section in the book of 1 Corinthians and is sort of the, the fuel in the tank of the charismatic movement and uh, a lot of misunderstanding about what spiritual gifts really look like. In chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be led off to the idols that could not speak. In other words, in, the wor in pagan worship, in temple worship, you were led off by idols. Your worship looked a certain way. Now, this is not an effort at being intentionally offensive, but I can tell you what worship in those pagan idols looked like. It looked just like most of the foolishness that you see on TBN and all these televangelist shows with people flopping around and flailing and a bunch of gibberish. That's what worship looked like in those pagan temples. And what Paul describes as unfold, what he condemns 
in the church at Corinth was patterned after that pagan temple idol worship experience. And verse 3 says, Therefore, I'm informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The essence of what's described there is a wholesome message, a gospel message, an affirmation of Jesus as Lord can only be informed and fueled by the work of God's Spirit. Anything that is untrue, anything that is in conflict with the gospel can only be informed by a spirit of Satan. My, my concern in so much of what you see in these excesses, the flopping and the flailing and the gibberish, is not that it lacks spirit. My concern is that there's real spirit present. It's just not the spirit of God. In verse 4, Paul says, Now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. Different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. A demonstration of the spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. And then he lists a number of giftings. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits or discernment, to another different kinds of languages, to another interpretation of languages. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. Now, that is not an exhaustive list of spiritual giftings. And often those spiritual giftings come within, with different groupings. You may have one or more of those spiritual gifts. And I'm not a person who is of the opinion that any of these spiritual gifts have completely ceased to be in operation. But I do understand that some of these gifts gifts, certain of these gifts were at work during a certain time in the history of the church as a way of affirming the truthfulness and the power of the gospel. Jesus himself exhibits this pattern in his own ministry. Jesus works miracles, not for the sake of working miracles, but as an affirmation or an attestation to the truthfulness of the message that he preached, that indeed he is who he says he is. There are times when I hear from frontier mission efforts on the field that God works in one or more of these miraculous ways. And I'm inclined to believe that indeed God has worked in one of these miraculous ways. And that experience accords with what we see in the New Testament, where the gospel has not been preached, where there is no foundational understanding of God or no expectation of the reality of Christ as the only begotten Son of God. It would stand to reason that God would work in a miraculous way in order to give affirmation to the truthfulness of the gospel. But these gifts, at least in my experience, by basic observation and in keeping with the pattern of the New Testament, do not have a function in the established church. And I cannot cite you a single example of these so-called miracle gifts functioning in an edifying way within the context of the local church. Now, in the translation that I read, and really what this boils down to, where the controversy lies is with the gift of of tongues, but you'll notice that that word does not appear in the list that we just read, nor does it appear in a later list included in the same chapter. Instead, the verse reads, to another, different kinds of languages, because that is the way the term should be translated. And the idea of speaking in tongues never suggested anything other 
than a supernatural ability to speak in a language that was until then not your natural language until all of the confusion created by the charismatic movement in the early 20th century. Brothers and sisters, anything that's barely a hundred years old in a 2,000-year-old gospel is something that is dangerous and unhelpful and does not edify the body of Christ. In fact, there, there, there is a clear, in the Greek text, especially of chapter 14, there is a clear distinction that is made between the supernatural spiritual gift of having the ability to speak in an intelligible language that is not your own and the kind of gibberish that would have been modeled in that pagan worship experience and is often witnessed on modern-day TBNs. Anytime gibberish is referred to, it is the singular of glossolalia that is referenced in the passage because there's only one language of gibberish. It's all the same. You can speak gibberish in Japanese or Chinese or English or German. It all sounds the same. But when reference is made to a legitimate, intelligible language, it's always in the plural because there is a plurality of languages that are spoken in the world. When those apostles gathered on the day of Pentecost, what you'll note, Luke records there, is that everyone from all these distant nations heard in their own dialect. They heard in their own language and were therefore helped by this experience, not thrown into a frenzy and confused at what was unfolding around them. There are a number of other lessons that are taught here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. It's not exclusively spiritual gifts, but those are camped out on for a great while. The gist of all that is said here is summarized in a pretty short statement that Paul makes. God is not the author of chaos or confusion, but of order. And he calls upon the church in their public gatherings to conduct themselves in an orderly and dignified fashion. Now, we can get stuffy with that. This doesn't look like a high church model where all the choir's in robes and I wear a big hot robe and everybody sits around and clasps their hands and nobody breathes or moves until the sermon's over. I'm not talking about all that. But there ought to be some, some degree of, of order. And I would even go beyond that to say planning in what we do together as a congregation in the public gathering of the church. I think many could be helped by understanding clearly what's being described in these chapters. And I would say to you, you ought not be afraid of them. There's no mystery there that you've somehow missed and will now be helped at the guidance of Benny Hinn and understanding on a deeper level. It really stated in a very straightforward way there in those three chapters. There's more, obviously, resurrection is to come in chapter 15, and Paul deals again with this desire to take the offering to the churches of Judea. He's gathering from the Gentiles this offering for the churches, which is such an interesting background for 1 Corinthians, right? Because he's seeking to create unity within the church, the, the, the universal church, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism church, to draw together Jew and Gentile under the banner of the gospel. And even as Paul is traveling thousands of miles to try to make this great big thing happen, in this one little church within the greater bride of Christ is a congregation that can't find the ability to get along with one another in spite of all the things they have in common. Paul reminds them of the power of the gospel that saves us and the humility that's necessary to embrace that gospel with full faith and the humility that is produced by embracing that gospel with full faith. He calls them together 
for the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus' name to lay aside their swords and to press forward to see Jesus famous in all the earth. Don't ever forget that message. If you ever, listen, if you ever do, if you ever do, it's difficult to put the cat back in the bag. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for your church, for the way that you have kept us and protected us and loved us and led us so well. It's a miracle in and of itself, Lord, that we could be gathered together as a bunch of Baptists in the South with all of the nuances that come with life here. And we could be on the same page, people of all kinds of backgrounds and life experiences from every uh, economic uh, level, Lord, from various social experiences, Lord, from various ethnic backgrounds with, with different likes and interests, Lord. We even have different favorite college football teams. And in spite of all that, you've allowed us in the gospel to be together in love and Christian unity. And we thank you for that, God. Lord, I pray that you would hold us fast, that you would keep us close to you and close to one another, that it would be our single-minded focus, the beating of our heart to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced around us and the glory of Jesus made known in all the earth. Lord, thank you for the way that you've loved us. Lead us on, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.